I'm Kat. I'm Nolan. I'm Maite. I'm Marius. I'm Mara. I'm Justin. And, and this, this is Comicverse. I am not going to lie. I've secretly waited years for a podcast about Polaris. So in case you haven't heard, Fox Television developed a series uh, that takes place in Fox's film, X-Men, Universe, Multiverse, whatever you call it. This series is called The Gifted. It stars that vampire dude who's married to Anna Paquin from True Blood and um, the awesome Amy Acker from Angel and various other Joss Whedon things. The main characters in the story um, are not derived from the comics, but well-known X-Men characters like Blink, Thunderbird, who is played by an actor that, when I look at, just gets me pregnant. Uh, we're going to have to take that one out. Uh, Thunderbird, who is played by a really charming actor, and uh, Polaris, which I'm really excited about because she's being featured in the series, and I've waited forever for her to be on a television series or an X-Men movie. It was kind of cool that she was in Wolverine and the X-Men, and she was in X-Men the Animated Series, if anyone remembers. All right, so in my opinion, Polaris, a.k.a. Lorna Dane, a.k.a. the sometimes daughter of Magneto, is one of X-Men and Marvel's most underrated characters. I've always kind of talked about her. So for those of you who aren't aware, Polaris is the seventh X-Men character. She predates Chris Claremont's run of the X-Men, um, predates Storm, Wolverine, all those people goes all the way back to Stan's run. The only character that preceded her, besides the original five, which are Iceman, Angel, Jean Grey, Beast, and Scott, Polaris was uh, originally billed as the daughter of Magneto, and that fact has been proven wrong and retconned back and forth several times. And as it now stands, she is still the child of Magneto. Unlike Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who have been retconned as now not being the children of Magneto. So before we talk the gifted and get into Polaris's role in X-Men comics themselves, I think it's important we introduce the panel. But even before that... Um, I have to remind everyone that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes by heading over to comicsfirst.com. Tons more videos, articles, podcasts, web comics for you to read, written by many people on this panel. And also, people probably don't know that we start to compile the podcast script and reading materials usually over a week before we record the podcast. And uh, everyone on the panel has access to it. So Nolan, I think, had some really good questions for everybody for the introduction. So Nolan... Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and everyone this week? Well, I'm longtime podcast contributor Nolan Benson. Oh, should I introduce you? Because I perfected my Nolan Benson introduction. You, you want to do that? I'll just introduce uh, okay, just yeah. you. And I just okay. want to say Tien and Comp because I've been practicing saying Marius' name for like four years. Um, but I always say Nolan, PhD, candidate at Columbia University, studying the first half of the early modern Ming Dynasty. Thanks for the introduction, Justin. I'm Nolan Benson coming to you from uh, beautiful Kunming, Yunnan, China at 4.30 in the morning on two strong cups of coffee. And uh, first, I'd like to introduce a stranger who I've never met before, this man, Marius Dienenkamp. Who is this? Have you ever done a podcast before, Marius? Well, I'm not sure, Nolan. I think I'm, I'm pretty new to this, right? Yeah, or read an X-Men comic? Uh, I've read a few in preparation for today, but I, I don't know if I'm a huge fan. Um, next, uh, we have uh, uh, Comics First, uh, Marvel Section, Chief Editor Kat Vendetti. I think a veteran of a few podcasts by this time, quite a few. 
Wait a second, you didn't uh, give Marius his like proper introduction. You just were like everybody all the listeners know who Marius is by now, you know. He's okay, well, like, what if this is their first podcast, Nolan? What if they're then they're gonna think it's so funny when they listen to a second podcast and they're surprised to find <laughs> Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Cat <laughs> Vendetti, uh Marvel section chief editor and recent uh hurricane survivor from St. Pete, Florida. Thank you for calling me Chief. Is I it like chief? it. Is that right? Master Chief? Um, yeah, we'll take it. Put it on my resume. So next we have um, Mara Danoff, veteran of at least one podcast I know because I was on it with her. Uh, an undergrad film student at Barnard and consummate AV kid. What's up? What, uh, what kind of film do you study at Barnard, Mara? So I actually want to go into film criticism. So I do more of the academic side of film. Uh, next we have a totally fresh voice. Uh, 100% new podcaster named uh, Maite Molina Muniz. Is that right? Nailed it. You nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it like Columbus nailed the, the tiny arrow. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, who is a. Uh, no, a you like uh, completely desecrated it. Yeah, but anyway, continue. <laughs> Uh, who is an undergraduate in um, English and computer science at Wake Forest. Yep, that's right. Um, I came on Comics First back in May, and it's been a really fun experience. I'm happy to be here. And that other voice you hear is uh, that of another new Comics First employee, uh, this fellow Justin Alba. Justin, what drew you to uh, apply for an uh, internship at Comics First? Has your boss been a good boss so far, Justin? He's a tyrant. He's like a combination. He's like all the worst parts of Nero and Caligula put together. No, just kidding. I like Caligula. Well, welcome to the podcast, Justin, you know, and I hope it goes well for you in your life. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, that was an amazing introduction, Nolan, I have to say. Um, but I think I'm going to take over the reins. We're going to just go over the reading list really quick. So everyone knows what we read in preparation for this. So we read Uncanny X-Men 50 to 63, X-Men The Hidden Years, X-Factor 87, which was an amazing issue, I thought. And I'm, I saw a cat that you liked it. We're going to talk about it later. Uh, Grant Morrison's uh, New X-Men 132, although all of us have read the Grant Morrison run before because it's just incredible. Really amazing Jean Grey, Emma Frost moments, which you should live for. Because uh, I do. We read other Uncanny X-Men, 425, 426, 442, 443, Magneto Dark Seduction, Uncanny X-Men Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire, X-Factor 243, All New X-Factor 1 through 20, Magneto 18 through 21, and X-Men Blue 9 through 11. Um, so that was pretty fun and quite a lot of reading. Uh, so we feel really polaris up right now. Let's start by talking about The Gifted. So are we excited to see the show? Is everyone here going to watch it? Uh, I'm definitely going to watch it. I love anything X-Men related. I think mutants don't get enough love on TV or movies. Um, I really loved Legion so much. I don't think this is going to be anything like Legion, but considering how great Legion was, I'm super excited that more mutants are going to be on the small screen. Um, I really love that Marius mentioned Heroes because I was a hu super huge fan of that too. Um, so if this is anything in the same vein as Heroes, I'm definitely down. Yeah, I mean, I'm super pumped about it. I think the trailer uh, made it look like it was going to be really entertaining, have a kind of a cool tone. And I think um, the television media may actually be preferable than introducing a character like Polaris in the film series, because I think the franchise has struggled in truly giving certain characters justice. Um, besides Wolverine, I guess he always gets the love in the film series, I feel. So I'm looking forward to see how the television um, medium serves these characters. 
I completely agree with Maite. I feel like the pacing of a TV show will be much more conducive to the soap operatic nature of X-Men in general. So I feel like um, giving these characters a chance to really show their own and also characters who might not be quite as familiar with like a general movie going audience will really allow for a wider variety of mutants to show off what they can do to people who might not have been already exposed to them from the comics. So what are we hoping to see in terms of the depiction of Polaris on the show? Um, I'm hoping that they kind of take her character through the journey that she's gone through in the comics, not necessarily everything that's happened to her, but she's gone through so many trials. And I feel like towards the stuff that she's in now, she gains more agency over that part of her life. So I'd really just like to see them take her characterization through that whole journey. Yeah, I kind of agree with Kat. I really hope they... um kind of show how she grows into her own identity. And I'm with that, I'm curious to see how they depict her relationship with Magneto, if that's even going to be touched on in the show at all. I very much agree. And I think that, um, especially when it comes to uh, stuff like Magneto, I'm kind of... Um, I'm kind of curious to see how uh, the show will, like, treat the X-Men universe law and how, how, how it will, like, um, connect to, uh, to the movie universe in terms of like the the character of Magneto and um, whether like their relationship will play a role, I agree. I'm I'm very curious about that. But also, if maybe like she can uh, in this series like work as a character of her own better, because uh, it's pretty certain that Magneto is not gonna be able to show up like in every episode if he gets a cameo at all. I don't think so. Um, Maybe she will be able to uh, to stand on her own feet a little more. So we read a lot of Lorna's first appearances. I, I, and Marius and I read her first appearance together, and it was super uh, dramatic. How do you guys think the addition of Polaris, the original team of X-Men, uh, do you think it altered the team dynamic at all? Early on, she's really driven by the men in her life. And I think that when she is um, added to the team, you do see that a lot because she's in this sort of love triangle but then she also says that she's nobody's girl so while it's nice to have a second woman on the team i do feel that a lot of her interactions were driven by the men around her yeah and elaborating more on that point not every character needs to necessarily pass the bechdel test the one where a female character's motivation shouldn't necessarily be because of a man or doing something because of a, another male figure but at the same time, if there were ever to be a case for it, I feel like Lorna's early character would have been just that. She was driven by her father and wanting to either be a part of his like, like empire as like a more evil Magneto. And then driven by the love triangle that the teammates sort of imposed upon her despite, you know, claiming to be an independent character. So it was very hard to really even discern what she was supposed to be or if she had necessarily a character in and of herself. I just could not glean a personality based off the ones that, you know, she didn't seem to have a... She didn't seem to have a personality is really what I'm trying to get at. And you're referring to her appearance in the very early... In the very early comics. She so might not feel that way later on, which we'll get no, to. No, later on, I really like her, and I think that she's one of the stronger characters, especially with the political end of it. But early on, she she was an object to be won. Yeah, especially that in the first few issues where she's introduced, she's supposed to be this very powerful mutant. They call her the Queen of Mutants, but it never really goes beyond that in her early appearances. It's just kind of her dynamic with Bobby and with Magneto. But I do agree that later on, 
I really do like her a lot later on. But in the beginning, I think they could have just done so much more with her. So I think in the uh, in one of her first appearances, which were uh, Uncanny X-Men 50 and 51 uh, that Justin and I read together, it was uh, very, very apparent how she um, was very much guided by what... Uh, or very much portrayed by what the men in her life uh, thought she would have to act like. So how much do you think her one-dimensionality or two-dimensionality was a result of a creative team of all men in a male-dominated environment, Mara? <laughs> There's a school of thought that you should write what you're more familiar with as opposed to trying to write someone else's experience. And I'm not saying that necessarily that will breed good storytelling, but I don't think it helps that a bunch of white cisgendered men in stuck in like some sort of room creating a bunch of comic books presumably for white teenage boys necessarily helps with the depiction of female characters especially one that could have at least initially and i know they do this more later but for a start been a really interesting and complex character you know, because she did have, like, she is technically Magneto's daughter. What does that mean for her? Is she going to follow in his footsteps? Is she going to break away from that? You know, the whole nature versus nurture thing. That could have been a really cool thing to explore early on. But instead, uh, there was this one panel in the earlier comics where literally one of the mutants comes up to her and they're like you're not evil, but your father is. And she's like, I'm on board with that. I have no idea who you are, but I will obviously come with you because you seem to understand that I am not an evil person. And it just was so bizarre to me because I was like, this is not what a real person would do. And I know that they're just supposed to be comics, but I I want them to represent women characters well. And that was just one instance in a whole bunch of instances in earlier comics where... Women just were not being written the way they should be written. Um, going off of that point, you can also, you know, talk about that in regard to the artwork, too, that often sexualizes and objectifies her body, you know, accentuating her breasts and stuff. I mean, that's common with a lot of female characters throughout comic book history, but um, that kind of aligns with your point. Okay, so playing devil's advocate, what do you say to a retractor who might say, hey, you know what? Um, I agree with everything that you're saying, but in 1965 or whatever year this was, 1966 um, through 68, it was just awesome to have another female character on the team, especially one who was super powerful. And then I would just reply, that's great, but why should you be celebrating representation if it's not done well? I think that I think making them super powerful can often be a kind of a replacement for substance of character, you know, like... And like you take up space on the page with them, like just blasting, 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 instead of having complex, uh, you know, uh, questions they're trying to answer for themselves or like goals. In in Magneto's like solo series, he keeps emphasizing over and over that it's not his powers that make him who he is, but his conviction, and that other mutants shouldn't um, consider themselves to be the sum total of their powers, right? You know, and so it's like when when she just when when like the most unusual thing about her character is that she's super powerful. It's just like, it's just not as interesting as if she has like a complex character, you know? Do you feel the men in the story are depicted in a more three-dimensional way? And and we should really make sure the audience understands that we're, that we're talking about uncanny X-Men 50 through like 63, which is in the, takes place in the 1960s, well before Storm, Colossus, Len Wein, 
um, and uh, Chris Claremont ever came to the X-Men. I think it's just that the male characters in X-Men in these particular issues are put more in the forefront. They're given much more control over what they want to do and how they feel. Whereas a character like Lorna who came along, she was kind of, things were kind of dictated for her. Her relationship with Bobby, for example, when they first, when that first comes on, he knows right away that he loves her, wants to be with her. And she says, you know, I'm no man's girl, but everybody is telling her what to do. Like there's this one line that Beast has where he says, oh, this is the daughter of Magneto. She's driven by her filial duty and a desire for power. So of course she's going to be evil. And she rolls with that. And I feel like she never has really, like early on, she does not have agency over what she wants to do as a person. You've read Lauren Mulvey, right? Yes, yes, I have. What what comes to my mind, especially in terms of Lauren Mulvey, and and what Kat just mentioned, and what we've sort of been talking about with early Lorna, is how uh, she is subject to the will of both these these two men, right? Oh, yeah. So she essentially has no will of her own, and it's Bobby who places her in the end in the role that he sees for, oh, for her. Oh, yeah. It's very much so, like, the male characters. Um, I'm not saying, like, they're Shakespeare-written characters. I mean, they are still early comic book characters, but at the same time, they are given the placement that a what the writers perceived the teenage boy would want them to be. As such, they had her be the object of desire that the male characters were pursuing, much like they assumed that the teenage readers would want to do for this character. And it was just frustrating to me. Like I, And I get the argument, like, oh, they're just comic book characters. It was the times, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that doesn't mean you need to, like, hold it you still can't hold it to a standard like you should because these are things that should be fixed or at least addressed in later issues which they do do for the most part when we compare polaris to jean gray when we compare her to uh, other contemporary female superheroes at the time the invisible woman comes to mind does lorna stand out in any particular way no she really doesn't honestly other than the fact that she's magneto's daughter i if you like recolored her and said that she was a different name i would have no way of telling her from another superhero female i would agree uh i think the only thing that uh you could make a case would make her stand out in that time is probably her power level because that was before jean gray was really like the uh the phoenix like kind of the uh the op powerhouse of the team i think she's notable for two reasons one being her power level which unfortunately didn't get explored enough that early on but also the fact that at that time and still even today a lot of a lot of teams a lot of groups of characters is typically is typically a bunch of men with one kind of token female character so while here there were the five x-men one being gene now you have polaris joining the ranks in some aspect so i think it is notable that at in this year and this age, um, X-Men did kind of expand a little bit to include that, despite the fact that she didn't really get the attention that she deserved. She just seemed like to me like another flavor of Jean. Like, here's the green flavor. Like, here's mint. Before it was cherry, here's mint. That was honestly when they were talking about, like, I don't know how to describe it, when they were essentially talking about boys at the very end, when she's, like, finally a part of the team. It just, it felt so, like good kid like eat your greens like these are the types of role models you should be type characters and 
again, honestly, maybe it's just, and I know it's partly because of like the art of the time, but it's like literally you two are interchangeable right now. I, it's a little bit uncanny. Yeah, especially, I definitely agree with that, her being a different flavor of Jean, especially that they both are two mutants who have this crazy amount of power. Jean ultimately having the power of Phoenix and Lorna being the daughter of Magneto, the queen of mutants, the mistress of Magnus and all this random crap they call her. So yeah, she is kind of just another iteration of this hot, powerful woman on the X-Men. She's almost just there to create this conflict between Bobby and Cyclops, where Cyclops can say like, Bobby, you need to be more objective. And Bobby's like, but I'm a man. I want to live. Slightly off topic, but now I can't help but think he would win in a battle between Polaris and Jean Grey. Okay, well, I would say in this era, Polaris. That's what I was thinking. Post-Phoenix Jean Grey, only because Lorna is a little less focused than Jean, I think. Oh, for sure. And I think she has a lot of, and I specifically asked this question later, I don't think she has the same coping mechanisms Jean has. And Jean is pretty much okay until you get her to the border and then she loses it. Versus I think Polaris slowly breaks away. And I know we're going to talk about this more in later segments, but you know she doesn't have the same support system that Jean does. Like Jean, at the very least, if nothing else, has Scott. And her, her parents and her sister. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, Lorna, she's pretty much on her own since, you know, Magneto, like, birthed her and decided, well, I'm going to be hanging out with these X-Men now. And then they all kind of still treat, like, oh, it's, it's really weird. <laughs> I guess it would depend. Yeah, it would depend when they were fighting. Because, again, Phoenix would just, Phoenix would be Lorna, hands down. But... If it were before she got the phoenix within her, um, I would say Lorna. So we're fast forwarding through the uh, 80s, 90s, aughts. Lorna has been a member of the X-Men most of this time, off and on. She experiences a great deal of trauma as a member of the X-Men. At one point, she's possessed by malice. She's almost killed by Zaladane. She is Pestilence, one of the horsemen of uh, Apocalypse. She's a victim of the Genosha genocide. So trauma affects every character and each person differently. How does her trauma affect her versus her teammates? I feel like Lorna has gone through nothing but trauma and she never gets a break. And it's always something huge, like being possessed, almost dying, being a horseman of Apocalypse. Definitely the genocide in Genosha where she has this huge survivor's guilt. So, and that stuff is hard to recover from. If it's one thing after another, I don't blame her. I feel for her a lot. I think that uh, in terms of her, her character and how like um, she's uh, depicted kind of like uh, throughout the years, I think as compared to uh, other X-Men teammates of hers who've, um, suffer, who's, who do suffer from trauma, she's portrayed as kind of more like a, like a ticking time bomb type of character which is unfortunate because um i think that it's uh in terms of like the depiction is kind of unfair that she would be seen as like the uh quote unquote the crazy one which i think she's being referred to by some of the other characters in i think it was um it was the peter david on you uh, x factor book no matter like what sort of trauma a character would have gone through, it would have been difficult for the the team to really understand how it would have like gone like how they would have been affected personally because like Justin said before, trauma affects everyone differently. However, the fact that they seem to forget 
that she had gone through so much things and just sort of be like, why are you acting this way? Why are you, you know, being like this? Why why can't you, sort of like, why can't you just get over it? Like, that's not how trauma works. That's not how, like, PTSD works. I mean, we can also tie that into um, X Factor 243 when it's revealed that she was involved with her parents' death. And with that, her teammates try to suppress that memory and hide that truth from her, which... You know, maybe they had good intentions, but was that necessarily the right thing to do? I mean, she found out anyway. Um, so, again, you go back to them not totally understanding her past and her identity. Marius, you 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 said they call her the crazy one. I think in multiple different issues we've read, uh, Havoc uses that. He doesn't say those exact words, but in so many words, he calls her the crazy one. And it's especially bad that it's him saying it. You know, he just comes across as such an asshole. Were they seriously about to like sleepless in Seattle? Like this freaking relationship between him and his nurse? Like, come on. Kids don't facilitate adult relationships. I, I know this is a popular trope in media, but like, it's not a thing. Not only that, but that was after that was after she found out Magneto was her father. That was after Genosha. That was she had been so back and forth with control over her powers. And all she wanted to do was go back home and, you know, have that relationship with Havoc again. And he leaves her at the altar and she yeah, she kind of um, goes on a little rampage, but she cries, too. Marius, you brought this up before about how uh, Emma Frost dealt with what happened in Genosha, and uh, it's kind of perfect because I want to ask this question. So, you know, as we all agree, Lorna experiences a great deal of trauma as a member of the X-Men, possibly more so than other characters. Um, so it's obviously hard to quantify, but which of these tragedies she experienced do you think had the biggest impact on her personality and who she is? And, you know, like Maria said, Emma Frost was also in Genosha when Polaris was, but personally I see Emma as more driven by the death of the Hellions in the early 90s by Trevor Fitzroy than I see her driven by Genosha. And I do also see her driven by Genosha, to be clear, just probably more so by the the, the death of her students, which caused her to essentially switch sides and switch ideologies. Uh, I'm not sure if I uh, necessarily agree about Emma because um, the creators have managed to to make a pretty good point about how she, like, gaining her secondary mutation and, like, having to watch her students die again, by the way, is, um, I think that's something that impacted her very intensely, especially um, when she has her, like, uh, back-and-forth battle with, uh, with Jean as the Phoenix, and we kind of get an insight into that. But um, in terms of like what uh, affected Lorna the most, I would probably say that. Um, and again, like it's hard to quantify, but uh, for me, it would be um, the suppressed memories from her childhood and uh, how her powers first manifested, and then of course how um, she kind of um, tried to regain uh, these memories, and also how like the the mystery about who her real parents are have shaped her experience going forward. I think that's uh, that's something that has a huge impact on the character. Yeah, I actually completely agree with the parents aspect. Um, I saw that as probably one of the more defining features, like defining aspects of what caused her to be who she was because now you know she knows that even though she might not have intended to, she's still a killer. She's murdered two people. Um, 
And that's hard. That's hard, especially for someone so young to have to try and grapple with. And it stays with you your entire life. Though I would also add that while that might have been like the preliminary trauma, especially later on in, again, 442-443, were these murders at Genosha, the whole genocide of that, because that's when I felt like she started really seeing like, and again, self-actualizing herself as a character and was like, hey, how could they do this to a bunch of mutants? And why were their lives so easily like lost, but the human lives of the ones in New York weren't like, why is, why is it more of a big deal that humans die, but not mutants? Yeah. I agree with everything everybody said so far that, um, repressing the memory of killing her parents on that plane, I think was the catalyst for everything. But Genosha was definitely the breaking points. Um, and to go off what Mara said, those moments in issues 442 and 443, she, Lorna makes so many great points that she realized, I think on Genosha, is that there's so much hypocrisy in humans saying that, you know, mutants are a menace and everything like that, but they can kill 16 million mutants so easily. There's that moment in issues, in Uncanny X-Men 442 and 443, where she's talking to Charles Xavier. She's sort of playing the devil's advocate, she says, to explain to him, you know, Magneto's, the, the method behind Magneto's actions. And she says to Charles, like, What's it going to take for people to realize mutants are worth living? Is it, you know, are you going to, is it going to be after you die and become a martyr? How many more of us need to die before humans accept us as people? I'll, like, I pretty much agree with everything you said, Kat. And just like expanding on it, like, I love how, even though this was written like some time ago, at least you can see how it plays in with the modern day, our modern day politics. And it's so powerful to be coming from a character who has had this type of growth and who has had this time to change from being so like one note into finally having like this trauma like and I'm, and I don't want to say that trauma will help with character development that's a terrible terrible way to go about like how characters would work but I'm I'm on the other hand I'm happy that she was able to voice these points so well in 442 and 443 because someone needed to say it. She is not incorrect. There is something inherently unjust about that. And I I definitely appreciate what Xavier is trying to get done. But man, he's he there is a to what end will mutants have to keep dying in order for people to realize that hey maybe the fact that we're treating them as inferior individuals won't solve anything and Lorna did a great job of just voicing those anxieties of the characters to me it's interesting though because it's like when does Lorna get a break like someone said earlier and if you think about it she was you know this dramatic thing happens to her you know when she first comes on the scene right She's fighting with the X-Men. She takes a break with them. She goes with Alex to San Francisco, gets her PhD in whatever, in geophysics or something. Which Alex also has. Uh, it's a master's. They both have master's, oh, masters. in masters. And you know, Jean Grey has a PhD. Has, oh, has a master's in psychology, I think, at Columbia. So then she goes from that to uh, kind of, you know, joining back the X-Men, joining back with the X-Men. She has that whole experience with Zaladane. She has the experience in Genosha. She has the really shitty experience with Alex leaving her at the altar. Spoiler alert if you haven't read X-Men's Sacred Vows. When does she really get to experience who she is as a person, as a woman, as someone outside of the X-Men? As someone, yes, who has the ideology she has, 
but as just when does she get to be a person and relax and take a breath and figure out who she is and i do feel like the other characters get this moment but i don't ever feel like she really gets it maybe until now and we'll talk about that in x-men blue i think she's starting to really come into her own and and not that we don't see her in control before but do we ever see her have the opportunity to, to reflect on what makes her her I, I think comparing her wedding issue with Alex, uh, with the very famous Scott and Jean wedding issue, illustrates this. Like the the whole idea of the Scott and Jean wedding issue is like this is a break from the constant threats and action. There's conflict between characters, but not. I don't. There might be like a fight. I don't remember. But either way, this is like a moment to mark their lives, their like festivities, you know, the sort of reason we have holidays in our lives, you know, whereas the uh, Lorna and um, Alex wedding issue is just like a grim, dark fuel for like making things real rough for everybody. I think later on, Lorna just gets much more agency over, over her traumas and over who she is as a person. I don't know if she ever overcomes a lot but in her later depictions like in in x-factor and in all new x-factor where she takes on a more leadership role but even in in that earlier run of x-factor um she's a lot more in control of herself and she still has moments where she kind of snaps and kind of acts out against people but but i think people understand her at that point and i think she's a lot more in control of that part of her personality and that part of who she is when she was standing up to Professor Xavier, and I, I don't mean to keep harping on these issues, but when she was able to question why the X-Men do what they do, and essentially the like the Xavier Institute as a whole, that to me was her starting to find her own identity because she no longer was sort of like a complacent part of the team. She was really trying to figure out like no what what do you stand for what do i stand for and trying to find her own place within relation to all of that and i i was very proud of her for doing that and good job lorna i'm not sure if that counts but um i thought that how she got really like competent and um uh, like just like a good leadership like figure in um all new X Factor was kind of interesting and kind of uh, uh, also like um, I mean we still get Alex um, depicting her as kind of like a, a crazy person and um, being kind of as we already established she's being an asshole about the situation but in terms of how she's depicted as um, as a team leader and also how she like is able to negotiate between uh, the team and the company, she's portrayed as really competent. And apart from uh, the Quicksilver betrayal, betrayal storyline, um, I think we kind of get her like catching a break, just being like a member of this team and uh, possibly the most important member also. But I thought when she seemed like the most kind of normal x-man was in rise and fall of the shiar empire oh when i so disagree but sorry continue you do i do i thought like, she was the most havoc's girl at that storyline than i had ever seen her since the beginning so at all i mean she, she she does like take his side in everything yeah and at the end she's like i'm standing with you in space havoc which now that i read earlier developments between them after reading that, I find that to be a lot more shocking. But just in terms of like 
she doesn't seem so traumatized. She seems to deal with, um, you know, with post-trauma well. She, uh, her powers are like on a kind of an even keel for a while there. They're like slowly getting more powerful. She's slowly relearning them for after Apocalypse. And she is kind of one of the like super powered members of the team in that, like one of the most powerful ones, but not so over the top as when, you know, as like Jean Grey in the Dark Phoenix saga, where it's just like everyone else is like, whoa, you know, so she just has a kind of a proper role, I feel, in that, in Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire. So something she says uh, in 443 is good and bad often come wrapped in the same package. And I was curious what you think Lorna specifically meant by this. Like, was this a character statement? Uh, why does she feel this way? And what do you, how do you think it speaks to her evolution as a character from when she was a teenager to this point? While it also is like indicative of her ideology in this issue, it also uh, has like a, a kind of a double meaning to it because it's very much about uh, her relationship to Magneto, to her, uh, her father. Um, because um, while it, we could probably agree with that uh, overall he's being a pretty terrible father, um, it, it like from her point of view, I imagine it being a bit more complicated than that. If I remember what I talked about in the piece and also the comics in and of itself, is that good and bad are essentially like I don't want to downsize it, but they are more or less framing devices. And I feel like Lorna does a good job explaining how one character's methodology and one person's like worldview is very much so depends on how they like frame a problem and even if like we might see it as being objectively bad that doesn't necessarily mean that a different side wouldn't see it as a positive and I feel like that's what Lorna was really getting into with why Magneto had to have been right because you know like given all that the mutants had gone through they should be they should be they should they should be allowed to fight back i was watching a george rr R. martin interview a few weeks ago and he was saying that the villain is always the opposition's hero and i thought that that kind of came across uh when i reread this um i really agree with everything mara said i think what polaris means there is that it's not black and white and it's all very subjective so what what somebody perceives as bad somebody else is going to see that as good and also that Good people are going to do bad things and bad people are going to do good things. And I think that pertains to Lorna herself a lot too, is that, you know, whether you're inherently good or bad, I feel that she's been through a lot of trials throughout her life. And I don't think she wants to see herself as a bad person just because of the things that have happened to her. The same as Magneto. Yeah, I mean, earlier we were talking about how we thought that Lorna may not be so distinguishable in comparison to other popular female uh, superheroes in the Marvel universe. But at the same time, when you think about it, I feel like this duality kind of gives her a stronger characterization. I mean, you could argue that with Jean Grey um, and various other uh, characters, but I still feel like this duality is something that she's been struggling with since she first appeared um, in the complex. And it's still something that she's struggling with, with uh, her relationship with Magneto, with all her past traumas. Um, it's something that she's never truly come to terms with. Um, it's something that could continues to, ca- to contribute to her um, perception of herself and who she is as an X-Men or as an anti-hero, however you want to perceive her character. I did kind of think this was a problematic question, even though we kind of 
talked a little bit about it, but does Lorna ever kind of recover from the traumas that she experiences? I don't think Lorna recovers from those traumas she experiences, and I think that's okay. Um, I make this reference a lot, and it's kind of dorky, but if you guys have seen the movie The Babadook, um, (laughs) the message in that movie is that you can't get rid of your traumas, but you can learn to live with them. And I think that's exactly what Lorna does. Um, The traumatic events of her life obviously still bother her, and they definitely should. I mean, those are huge things that are really difficult to get past, but she's able to have more agency over them now, and she's able to live her life and be part of a team and I, I think that she accepts them now. I think she accepts them as a part of her. Um, but she's able to she's able to live. I think that's really beautifully said. Because I mean, who really does get over those things? I don't. Anyone want to add anything, Maite? Yeah, I mean, kind of just what you said. What you just said. I feel like that's a very common aspect <laughs> throughout um, comic books and superheroes. I mean, like look at Batman. Look at every superhero that's experienced some sort of trauma. They don't really let that go. And again, like Kat said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if anything, that gives them more complexity, that gives them more, I feel like, motivation um, in their character. It doesn't matter who writes Lorna. Her role as Magneto's daughter seems to be uh, super important to her. Um, so at one point, when Alex leaves her at the altar, spoiler for those of you who haven't read, is it Uncanny 425, 426? You definitely should um, because it's really campy. And uh, I wouldn't say it's awesome, but it's I was glad I read it. The, the The arc is called Sacred Vows. It's two issues. So like I said, spoiler alert, Alex leaves her at the altar. Um, she dons, is it dons or dones? Dons, dons. She dons Magneto's helmet. She creates it out of silverware, no less. Um, you know, she's like, I don't need these spoons, but I need a Magneto's helmet to kick your ass, Havoc, when he leaves her at the altar. What does this mean for her? in terms of her character development from uh, the early X-Men issues to later ones. Um, I would just like to quickly point out how by donning the silverware and by using domestic household items in order to create a suit of armor can in one way be read as her rejecting the heterosexual norm of the housewife and... (laughs) And becoming, you know, just her own self-actualized person. But more to the point, I that I mean, this arc frustrated me on many levels because I didn't think that she deserved what happened to her. It didn't seem just or right. And so when she was about to go, like, destroy Alex and get revenge, I was kind of there with her. I was like, yes, girl, go, go beat his ass. Like, come on, you deserve this. And I I don't know, I was very proud for her. Though it did seem a bit weird that they kept sort of, like, hearkening back to her being married. She still had the tattered remains of her wedding dress and was singing, Here Comes the Bride, Um, which... If there were ever to be an intimidating moment of that song, other than like the actual event, I suppose, that would be it. Um, and I wasn't sure like if we were supposed to be siding with Alex, like, cause she definitely, like, that was more of a, you know, good on her moment, like, yes, revenge, let's do this, guys. But yeah. I do think it's interesting how they tried to change our perspective because she sleeps with that Gambit impersonator the night before as if to say, well, they're not going to get married for the right reasons anyway. Um, So it's kind of okay that he does this. Um, I'm just throwing that in there. Not that I feel that way. I have so many mixed feelings about this because 
as we talked about before, she's been through so much trauma. So I really, I really hate this crazy girlfriend narrative that they put on Lorna. Um, as far as her donning the costume, I think she did it for the drama of it all. Um, but also I think like also just considering like where X-Men was in this time period, Magneto was still like largely considered a villain and antagonist. So I feel that um, she's, she's been really, um, it's been really like tumultuous her figuring out where she fits in as Magneto's daughter. So I feel like, you know, it was kind of just like this like representation of like all her fears and like all of this like latent power that she has, that she had to kind of like take on the image of her father. Um, I did think the whole scene was really ridiculous though of her just frustrating me to no end that the only reason she was having this great show of power and you know honestly a fantastic outfit like really well retooled for her own person was because a guy left her at the altar and like they said in like the little introduction into one of the issues like hell hath no fury like a woman scorned and i'm like okay one this feels like slightly dated two like yeah, she has a right to be upset. Why are you trying to make it seem like she shouldn't be mad? Like, even if they weren't getting married for the right reasons, he still left her there at a moment that should have been one of the happiest moments in her life. That's not okay. This is also something that uh, was striking me as odd, which, I mean, it's it's uh, like from the Chuck Austin run, we already talked about that on, on several podcasts. Um, it it has its moments. It's kind of like weird moments, dated moments, uh, kind of cheesy moments in that case. But uh, I mean, uh, like in terms of um, like, did, was it something that bugged me? Yes, definitely. But I also thought it was uh, it was telling that she would kind of uh, take on the like the Magneto armor, which is kind of like also for drama, but it also while she has a complicated relationship to her father, something that um, I took away from almost all the other stories while the two of them were together that is that um, she also has a lot to learn from him. It also, it also portrays her as so clueless that she didn't notice the problems in this relationship coming up to the wedding, you know, and that she's like taken, that she's surprised enough to go, so to become so angry. And, um, it, and if not clueless, then it portrays her as kind of like loyal and perseverant, which is just as much of a stereotype, I think. I will say that I totally agree with Kat and also what everyone else is saying that the narrative is structured in such a way that you're supposed to identify or, or at least empathize more with Annie and Havoc. But I do have a different perspective, should I say. Um, let me say that I might say the mechanism in which to... Uh, deal with this character drama is maybe a little bit cheesy with the leaving at the altar thing. Um, although I do think it's different for X-Men, but I sort of saw this whole storyline as a character driven moment for X in a character driven moment in the X-Men's history. And I, what I liked about it was that it was a story about, you know, this guy who fucked up and his girlfriend who isn't in a really good place from what's happening and who probably isn't ready to get married and, you know, he does this dickish thing and here's what happened. And none of it's really dictated by plot, which I kind of liked. Um, I, I I mean, maybe I have because I love Medea and I love a doll's house. So whenever a sort of uh, maybe to me, when a woman like reacts in the, in 
or I mean, she overreacted. I mean, Lorna, she broke. And I feel like, to me, that's always like a Medea-esque reaction that I find very desirable and, and really cool as a reader. Um, and I guess it, it's not that I even disagree with everybody. It's just that I wasn't necessarily caught in the morality of it. I mean, I was Team Lorna the whole way, but what I liked about it was that I saw different parts of the characters and more fleshed out attributes of the characters that I don't see in the sort of big battles, the big events. And it was a, for everything that it was, it was a quieter moment that I liked as a reader. You know, I think that her trauma from Genosha has her like teetering more, uh, what, what she considers to be her dark side, which is kind of ironic after that whole story and uh, that whole stance she has in Uncanny X-Men 443. But I do see her donning the whole Magneto costume, or at least from the waist up, as embracing her being the daughter of Magneto, embracing her dark side completely in order to do this task, which is to get back at Havoc. And I also thought that that was kind of cool. I don't know. I just When I saw that panel, I was like, this is so badass. Lauren is so badass. And I kind of loved it. I think it has a lot to do with how... Her, um, how her reaction was framed. If it were like we were supposed to be sympathizing with this woman who has been understandably hurt and has dealt with a lot of things already, then I feel like people would have been a lot happier with it and it could have been a great character development moment for Havoc that you can't treat people like they don't mean anything. But instead, the way that the intro into the um, intro into the comic has and the way the comic reads is that we're supposed to feel bad for this romance between Havoc and Annie, right? Annie, yeah. And that's like, that's not okay. It's not, it's not a, it's, first off, it's not narratively satisfying for a reader who's already followed a relationship between Lorna and Havoc for so long. It's not enjoyable from just sort of like, a drama perspective because it doesn't feel like it's been earned it's just something that's sort of contrived and thrown together for the sake of it and i guess that's what my real problem with it is in the end is that it just it just feels kind of mean as opposed to a well-earned like soap operatic moment what does polaris see in magneto that has her taking pride in their relationship as father-daughter really throughout the entire series. Uh, she does reject his philosophy during the Claremont era, but that relationship is always really important to her, even when she doesn't think that that's her father, isn't aware of that. I think her defense of Magneto just after Magneto's attack on New York, it, it kind of heralds like an editorial shift in the aughts that has been building pace up to today in which, you know, we see these attempts to recast Xavier as a um, misguided character or one with ultimately negative influences. We see uh, the kind of failure ultimately of Xavier's efforts to mold Cyclops and certain other characters into like heroes for mutant kind and a kind of like corruption of those characters. And now we see Magneto as like, more or less leader of the X-Men, leader of half the X-Men, a kind of like a, a repeat of the early 90s with uh, Age of Apocalypse and of the mid-80s when he was leader of um, the New Mutants. So there's like a kind of a cycle here, but we're on the, ever since that moment or right around there, we've been on the upswing of the like pro-Magneto cycle. So her character 
you know, is a natural choice for someone to begin the upswing of that cycle by defending her father. Uh, yeah, I think that, um, first of all, I, I agree with uh, the points that Nolan has made, but I think that um, uh, whenever she, uh, like apart from whether she uh, actually agrees with his ideology or not, I think that um, she always feels like Magneto can be useful to her or, uh, in, in terms of how she can learn things from him. Um, and uh, like ultimately, I think that uh, she has kind of like, uh, she knows that um, Magneto as a father is probably not the, uh, not the best person to, to actually fulfill that role. She, I think she's very aware of that uh, throughout her entire history, history with him. I mean, I was thinking along the lines of the fact that maybe she has an innate desire for some sort of um, guide in her life. I mean, she lost both of her parents and you can perceive Xavier, you know, as that um, mentor, but at the same time, maybe inherently she feels as though Magneto will understand her in a way that no one else does, particularly her duality. Part of what makes up her like in a weird way, her fascination of Magneto is that um, Magneto is very good at getting her uh, to a place where uh, he needs her. Like in terms of, uh, I think a very good example for this would be uh, the Colin Bunn Magneto solo series, where um, a solo book where he uh, manages to manipulate her into um, uh, assisting him in uh, trying to save uh, his universe uh, or his Earth in that case from the Ultimate Universe. Um, but um, yeah, I think that she's. Uh, not easily falling for that, but falling for that uh, too often for like her own good, which is um, which is like one of the reasons that she has this like very complicated relationship to him. And uh, Quicksilver points this out in like um, I think it was um, Magneto Dark Seduction, where she doesn't like in where she initially the like really doesn't come out to to like denounce his um, his bigotry. Uh, and uh, is kind of still like on board because she she thinks that Magneto can amplify her power level and that's where she needs to be at that point. She also points out that like uh, it has been argued that schools themselves uh, create that environment and that gets a rise out of Xavier. He like raises his voice and he's like, no, my school is different. It doesn't do that. What I uh, what this makes me wonder is um, like is she too forgiving toward Magneto just as she's too forgiving I think toward Havoc? Should she like be more demanding toward Magneto? Should she does tell him he's a bad father, but should she just like not even should she just not be willing to interact with him unless he becomes a better father? I think that that's a very tall demand for her to do and just in general for like the type of relationship that they have because I mean I can't speak to this personally but if you haven't really known this father and you haven't really necessarily had a real father-daughter relationship it's hard to kind of try and rekindle that as an adult because you don't necessarily need him like you would have as a child and it seems like what she has come to him more for, and this is sort of the point that I wanted to make, was that she's starting when she's trying to figure out who she wants to be and how she wants to like perceive the world and go about it. He 
was at the very least his or at the very least his ideologies were able to help guide her into like how she would want to approach being a mutant and being like a person with like extremely powerful magnetism abilities and then like i would think like it's more like the whole nature versus nurture thing like she wasn't necessarily like raised by magneto i think that's an is that an accurate statement to make yeah she wasn't necessarily raised by a magneto but she has a lot of him in her and that's not something that she should necessarily shy away from and the fact that she's starting to learn that just because he is more villainous than some other people and just because his thoughts are more extremist that doesn't necessarily mean that she in and of herself has to deny that part of her. She can be that and still be herself. Kind of jumping off from that, I wonder if Xavier is not enough for her, uh, is not enough of a mentor, is not enough of a father figure, and that there's a certain, I, I'm not sure what the word is, but, well, I will say that maybe she needs to have a one-on-one relationship that, that fills that void of, you know, not having grown up in a typical nuclear household the way she wanted to, or like the other X-Men really. Just to answer like that point, I think that that's part of why she does, you know, go towards people like Havoc. That's why she does develop these strong, if a bit absurd relationships with people in her life is just to have that kind of connection that she seems to want to have with someone. I mean, I don't want to just say, Oh, it's daddy issues because that is a whole sea of problematic, but I do. Oh yeah. It's like, it's like a real thing, but you know, I feel like at least again in 414, 443, when she's starting to see herself as, you know, like my Nino maybe wasn't all that bad. Maybe I can incorporate more elements of him. It's kind of like a way of rekindling that kind of relationship with somebody, even post-mortem, which I thought was a a good idea for her to do to finally, finally be a really true independent character. Like, and here's someone who's never been allowed to feel special their whole lives. And this, what would make someone feel more special than that, you know? Like, because she never had the parents Jean Grey had. I think Jean Grey grew up feeling very special. Going off of the point that you said earlier about um, Xavier not being enough for her, I think, you know she's not necessarily seeking empathy from her peers. I think she might also be seeking a way to identify with somebody else who, you know, her personal experiences are very different from the people around her and what they've experienced. So I think in a way she's kind of seeking that connection in which she can relate to somebody and, you know, not necessarily just receive their empathy because that doesn't mean they understand, which is Xavier's perspective. I think it is interesting. So doc Samson, he psychoanalyzes the whole team on X factor. And I was curious, I loved that issue when it came out. I loved going back and reading it. Now I, I, I guess when I, when it was younger, I thought it was longer than it was. And I thought it was a little bit more in depth and I kind of wish it was like a double sized issue. Cause it would have been cool to hear more psychoanalysis. Um, also on marvel.com, Tim Stevens, who's been on this podcast before writes these amazing psych word articles. I don't know if you guys have seen them, but he, the Emma Frost one is super amazing. So definitely check them out on marvel.com. Um, but I was going to ask everybody here, was there something that you learned from her in this issue that you found interesting or telling about who Lorna is? I was really interested to learn just how insecure she is. And for Doc Samson to say, he, he gave all these metaphors with her magnetic power saying, you know, she repels people and she's afraid that she's not attractive. And 
thought that was very interesting. That wasn't something I had gotten from her before, but for him to make those points about her and she reacted to that. And then she comes in later, super defiant. And just kind of jumping off Kat's point, And I, I know not, I know I shouldn't expect so much from a comic or what have you, but would they have said that to say Magneto, who has the same exact power set she does in a very similar trauma? Probably not, because they would have been like, you know, he he attracts people. He is, you know, powerful and strong. He has all this stuff. But because, you know, she's a woman, they can just assume those things and roll with it because, you know, girl. That's a good point. But I'd say as someone who was overweight as a kid, I identified with that because at least they were talking about weight with somebody. Uh, I would probably agree with what Kat was saying is that uh, it was interesting to see some of her vulnerabilities and... um uh, difficulties in opening up to others and that it, th- this is kind of something that like really really annoyed her or set her off I guess is this idea of having to like um, to like open up to others because uh, she thinks there was like even some like uh, to her it almost seems like there was like some kind of like malicious intent so I guess like in terms of how she copes with her, her trauma there was like one of the more interesting issues for me because before it was kind of like hard for me to to like really um, get a grasp on the character and I think that helped. I think it was her defiance to repeat myself that sh- that I learned about. I mean, only in the wedding issue and those that come after Magneto's attack on New York does she seem so combative. And in a lot of her other appearances, she's quite passive, you know? And so that, and in this, it's not about Magneto, you know? And it's not about her role in the Marvel Universe or anything like that, or like global ethics or anything. It's just, she just like doesn't want to be psychoanalyzed. She does. I mean, it's not about Magneto, but she does sound like him in his solo run when he keeps saying, you don't know me over and over to people. You know, she has has that same attitude. And I mean, I agree with Nolan with that. It's um, I feel like it was a big transition for her character, which I find very compelling. Um, I think it was a moment where you maybe not identify with her, but you can almost understand her in a way you didn't before. You knew about her, um, you know, her different character aspects, her different histories, but at the same time, you didn't really understand maybe her perception of those events in her life. And I feel like in that issue, you came to understand that in a way you couldn't before. I love that, that you kind of understand her perception more. Um, And also for me, I found this issue nourishing in terms of a place, you know, decades later to kind of explain her behavior and, you know, parts of her relationship with Alex. For the reason she states that she's insecure, it's no wonder why she would never really feel at ease in this relationship. And especially after the whole Annie thing and being left at the altar when they got back together. So let's do the whole Susan Batson thing. So for those who don't know, uh, Susan Batson wrote a book on method acting, but it's also really good for writers who want to write really compelling characters and really three-dimensional characters. Uh, she talks about what the actor can do to turn a character in a script 
and make that character more three-dimensional. The three dimensions that she talks about are public persona, how a character wants to be perceived, the need, the driving force behind most of the character's actions and what is requisite to that character as an organism to survive. And she describes the third dimension, the tragic flaw, as a jam up, something that prevents the need from being accomplished. Uh, so let's go around. And uh, what is everyone, how would everyone describe Lorna's public persona? And I should add that when I interviewed Peter David at Five Points Festival, um, and I asked him this, I asked him, I did like that word association thing for him to say what he thought about his characters. And he said Lorna was a would-be leader. I definitely understand where Peter David would be coming from later, especially how she's seen now. I would definitely say that she is more of a leader persona, but especially early on. And I feel kind of bad for saying that she was more of a victim. And do you think that's how she wanted the world to perceive her? I don't think that's how she wanted the world to perceive her, but I feel like that's what she wound up being anyway. I found myself agreeing with uh, with the leadership uh, statement a lot, I guess, because um, we see that like uh, in in recent depictions of the character. She wants to be perceived as like the bigger person, the one who is like forgiving, adaptable, l- low maintenance, who uh, is heroic in that sense, like always rising above but she has a temper just like her father and she's quite perceptive and intelligent and she's not that forgiving about people's flaws when it comes down to it she notices them very acutely and she doesn't have patience for them when she gets truly mad you know and that and that's why she like blows up sometimes when we talk about what it means to be a leader one of the qualities of uh, people liking a leader is that they are self-sufficient and low maintenance and i know you're going to talk about her need and you know and for those who don't know susan batson's work truth the book that we're talking about um a way to discern the need is to look at what the opposite of the public persona is the need is is for safety and to be taken care of in a way it's it's almost like her personality her public persona her public persona is about hiding the fact that maybe even though she is self-sufficient, even though she does have the qualities of a leader, that she doesn't feel that way. I don't know if it has so much to do with leadership. I think um, to take her father as an example, Magneto is self-sufficient and commanding, but not low maintenance. Magneto has to be like handled, you know, because his ego is so uh, big. So she has that. I think her need is to be is to be commanding rather than forgiving to be taken seriously rather than taken as someone who is low maintenance, right? Like when you take someone seriously, you take their opinion under consideration. You give it like equal weight with other people's opinions. When you remember that someone is easy to deal with, then you just go, okay, well, they'll be fine. You know what I mean? So she needs to be like, like commanding, but feels that that is too uh, much to ask of people including her lovers, including her friends, too. And also, I mean, I, I just read Hillary Clinton's book, and I'm sure we can talk about this a little bit, but, I mean, it's Hillary Clinton talked about how dangerous it was for her as a woman to be seen as commanding, and I wonder if that plays into uh, Polaris's character at all. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm so hung up on her, like, the fact that she does wind up becoming so obsessed with, like, Havoc and these men who honestly like can't hold a torch to her um but like the fact that she just wants somebody to at least love her as much as she feels like she kind of needs that validation from someone and 
it's painful because like I don't necessarily think she needs to find that in a romantic partner or in any of that like she could just go out and get a dog and then get that you know unrequited love basically from the same place um but I it just the fact that someone would need to see her and appreciate her and give her the love that she honestly deserves is what I feel like she could do well with yeah I could see to be the need to be special all right, so what's the tragic flaw then? And then we'll do the reverse order. So what prevents her from being, as you said, Maite, was it the Polaris that, what, what, was the, what were the words? So I think the Polaris that she is comfortable being or the Polaris she aspires to be. Oh, yeah. So what prevents her from being the Polaris that she aspires to be? What prevents her from accomplishing her need? Like, where does that jam up come from? Yeah, I think what's preventing her from that is definitely all the traumas that she's been through. She's definitely been put through the ringer. And after so many times, it it gets harder and harder to pick yourself back up. So eventually, it's just going to become more and more exhausting for her to kind of get past all of that stress. I definitely agree that um, the traumas would be one of the main reasons. And also the fact that... um, uh, which also, uh, which is also one of the reasons uh, these traumas like exist in the first place is the fact that uh, the people in her life would um, wouldn't stop like being manipulative towards her or like uh, mistreating her. Especially, I mean, we've talked about this, um, especially with Magneto and Alex. Well, I think by the schema that I was like laying out there. Uh, it's that the flaw is that she can't be consistently commanding. Like she can't keep that up. She, uh, it, 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 it either comes out in like bursts, uh, or not at all. And, you know, like take Magneto, he's like consistently commanding, demanding, unwaverable. Dark Scott is the same way. Dark Scott. Xavier is consistently forgiving, Giving people second chances, or pretending, adapt. or pretending to be that way. I think he really is that way, but we can get into that on the third, the dream annual podcast. I mean, or the whatever. fourth one, yeah. Oh, the fourth one. The uh, and you know, she sort of like um, she she wants to be that forgiving person, but this commanding person lies underneath and comes out in bursts, and that's the flaw. Like that is her; those are her like explosions of anger. And if she could just keep it consistent, then she would be like a great leader, you know. But I don't think it's so much about leadership, really. I honestly just, I don't think she knows how to help herself right now. I think that she needs some help. And I don't, I'm not saying that she won't eventually get to a point where she can understand that she doesn't need other people to validate who she is. But especially like the the stuff that really stuck with me was that she really needed someone there for her. And she was kind of like reaching out into the darkness and nobody was there to like hold on to. And I, that, re- I, that felt like that was really hard. And I, there is no good answer for what would help her get better. I mean, I guess therapy, but that doesn't really seem to be an option in the X-Men universe. I guess she could go back to Doc Sampson. <laughs> yeah, that didn't seem to go over too well. I, I love what you just said, by the way, and to tell her to, to tack on to what Nolan said and then what you said. I love that you said that she doesn't know what she wants or she doesn't know what will help. When Nolan talked about 
her wanting to seem like she has her shit together, her wanting to seem like she is low maintenance, that Lorna isn't doesn't want to accept the fact or let into her sense of self that she is allowed to crack from these horrible traumatic moments that have happened. And therefore, she doesn't think she needs or isn't aware of where to go or even how to ask to get the coping mechanisms that she requires in order to be the Polaris that she wants to be. Let me, since we talked a little about her, like, um, childhood trauma of uh, killing her parents, you know, I think I can trace her discomfort with being commanding and unilateral back to that, because it's like, there's a moment in which she did something without asking anyone's opinion without forgiving people and letting them get another chance. She just acted on what information she had, which she was a small child. So that's like imperfect information and it killed her parents, you know? So ever since then, she doesn't want to be unilateral like that, you know, whereas take Magneto and his total comfort using his powers of killing people and not even regretting it. Right. Like he, he never had to feel like, Oh, I killed someone by accident with my powers. No, no, no. He should have used his powers more Then he, then more people lives would have been, saved uh in the holocaust you know when he was a teenager and i think one word we haven't used is guilt uh, does she feel guilt over uh what happened with her parents i don't think she totally realizes it but i think that that definitely subconsciously plays a huge part into why she does things the way she does and i also like i would even go so far as to say like she feels guilty by the fact that she's magneto's daughter that in some way the the like the trauma of the parents is the trauma of the children and even though she wants to need and she needs to find herself as her own person and realize that what has happened isn't necessarily her fault in either situation it's not something that will just go away overnight this is a long process that hopefully her character will someday go through I definitely agree with that point about the guilt of being Magneto's daughter, because I feel like even if she doesn't necessarily want to associate herself with him, she inevitably identifies herself with him and will find similarities between them. And I think that kind of complicates their relationship because it's almost like, you know, this reluctance to, you know, be have him be a part of her life, but he is, and she can't change that. So in a way, she has to find a way to cope with that. Could you imagine Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris, sitting in the room with us? And if so, what would she be like? I think that with Polaris, Polaris is probably one of the characters where I always thought it would be a lot harder to imagine her in like a, a three-dimensional manner together with others in the room. And now that I've read up on her a lot, I guess that I think it's easier. And I think that, um, uh, you know, our new X-Factor had a lot of like, cute little moments where she was like uh, sitting at the breakfast table with the other people at the um, at the facility and we got this like cute little like banter moments I think uh, that gave us kind of like an impression of what she would be like in like a like a casual environment and I think these little details are always like um, important as to like being able to um, to imagine some, someone in, in a room with us. But I think it's still harder to, to like imagine her sitting right next to me as compared to like the big X-Men names like Kitty and, and, uh, and Cyclops and Jean. I used to think Lorna was boring as fuck, but um, I was like, Lorna's done two cool things her whole life. Um, but 
just in preparing for this podcast and kind of analyzing her character in these different ways, I've realized that she's been through so many trials and she's been through so many struggles and she's reacted to them despite being, you know, a mutant with power. She's reacted to them in a lot of human ways, I think. So I think in that sense, despite the fact that we don't get to see a whole lot of her outside of those experiences, it does make her relatable in a sense. So I think that, I think that she's somebody that I could imagine being here. I think talking to her would be kind of strange. Like, it would just be really weird to have, like, some lady with, like, extremely powerful magnetism just to be chilling here and, like, hey, what's up? My hair is naturally green. These probably aren't points that I should get hung up on, but I kind of do. Um, And, yeah, I won't say that she's the most, like deep like she's not the deepest character that marvel has ever created but she definitely is dimensional enough that if she were to be if someone were to describe this as like a person i could see it as like a real person though i would probably have a lot of questions and be like so the hair how how did this happen it was from when she was a kid right from when she killed her parents by accident your hair just turns green I think that's what happened. Is that what happened? Did anyone? Yeah, that's what happened. Oh, <laughs> that's oh yeah. yeah. I, I, I think the skips an issue. The one issue you skip, Mara. Okay. I can't imagine it. I I would have trouble imagining speaking to any X Men character. Their stories are also much larger than life. You know, I don't know anyone who was the like child of a. Uh, dictator of a country of 16 million people that were all killed it's just not it's hard to imagine you know yeah i kind of agree with that i feel like it's hard for me to wrap my head around sitting across a table with the polaris and i feel like you wouldn't have enough time in the world to really get to know her and talk to her about everything you'd want to talk about but i would also want to know about the hair it's, color it's a real even thing. though i guess that wasn't well, how do you maintain it yeah these are the questions that you should ask if she were real well, I think that would be a good place to start. You don't want to be like, so how did you feel about the yeah? So it's Genosha like, so the hair. Do you just like swim in a lot of chlorine? You used to be really blonde, but you know, you never washed it out properly. Or is it like, are you going for a sort of pop punk look, and you've just really committed to the aesthetic, and now this is your every day? Like, or is it like an earthy thing, like green of, of the yeah, earth? Yeah, you going for a mother nature? You know, right. like. Like Gaia type deal, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. I cannot yet imagine her sitting in the room. I can't imagine Scott. I can't imagine Jean. I can't imagine Storm. I can imagine Kitty Pride. I can imagine Magma. I can imagine all of the new mutants. I always have to bring her up because I love her. I can imagine all the new mutants. Psylocke, I couldn't imagine until I read Uncanny X Force, and I'm on the brink with her. But Lorna, I still, I still need more development from her before she can come over. I feel like it would be more of a convenience than that I would want her to be here because her powers are basically infinite. And I would ask her a lot of questions about geophysics. Oh, yeah. Really delve into, you know, what she studied. That would yeah. be good. Yeah. That would be a good place to start. Right? Okay. So we, now we know how to approach her if she were ever to become real. Okay. Good to know. So favorite moments out of what she read. Everybody go. Uh, this is 
this is it's funny because I was definitely probably ridiculing this just a little while ago. But when she was saying, here comes the bride in the full garb, I was just it was one of those moments where I was just so shocked that that's what they chose to do. And it was so over the top like evil and it wasn't even like a really like good character moment for her but it was just such a bizarre image of like this angry woman in like a torn off wedding dress half dressed as Magneto and half about to be married and just trying to intimidate the crap out of everyone it was it was just a, a really funny moment so aside from Uncanny X-Men, what were those issues? 442, 443? Talked about those endlessly already. My, I would have to say my favorite moment from what we've read is in um, X-Factor 243, I want to say, where um, she has that Polaroid of her parents and Longshot touches it and gets that like psychometric reading from it. And she knows exactly what she wants and she knows exactly how to get it, which is using everybody in the room to give her answers. And I just thought that was so cool of her because she knew ex- she wanted to get answers for her life. She wanted to take control of this moment in her life. And everybody was trying to protect her. And she kind of pushed them all out of the way and said, and she just took control of that moment for herself and she got it. And I just thought it was so great because she was kind of like strangling people with her powers and just kind of like pushing people around and like being a bully about it. But everybody understood like, oh, this is Lorna. Like, this is just how she is. And Let's listen to her. And I just really loved it. And then they try to trick her, but she sees through it. You know, she like knows these characters too well. Yeah, that's awesome. I 100% agree. I really liked X Factor 243. I feel like it, even though it was kind of a tragic issue, I just felt like it was a really monumental work for her character and um, also how her teammates perceived her. I feel like they didn't totally understand her. And I don't think they, they, I still don't think they totally do, but I feel like they, you know, maybe understood her a little bit better than they used to. And I feel like that was really good for her character. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I will probably have to say uh, X, uh, Uncanny X-Men 442, 443, which we already uh, mentioned a lot on this podcast because those were really like outstanding issues, especially for the character. Uh, and especially the moment where she's uh, very close to actually murdering Charles Xavier, or at least to... Um, to pretend as if she would in order to make a point. Uh, and like the point that she's trying to make with it is that she doesn't really want to kill anyone. But um, uh, at the same time, there's a lot of like moral gray area in terms of like, when is it okay to fight back? And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I liked both Peter David issues very, very much. But I got to say, Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire was my favorite in general of the comics we read. And I think I liked her role in it best too. Like in that she's not the main character. She's not like the big problem character. What, what will we do about Lorna, you know? And she, but she's also not like hardly in it. Like she was in some of the issues we read. She's, she has like exactly one X person's role in it. And that it works well to me, you know, it's neither overblown nor underplayed. It's just like, she fits there. Fine. What do you think she'll add to the gifted? I think she'll add insight into an X-Men character we haven't really seen before in the film or I haven't seen Legion, so maybe I'm wrong, but I just I just 
am praying that the show is good enough so that we can continue to see because I'm sure like we're gonna see the beginning of her character development and I would love to see it how the show adapts that in a way that truly gives her character justice I have not seen a female X-Men character have an arc yet in any X-Men stuff so it would be cool if Lorna was the first I think she can show the inner turmoil that mutants go through um, for me it's almost uh, impossible to answer this question because it's um because uh, the way that Fox handles its X-Men properties is usually very like unpredictable and not not necessarily like uh, really close to any sort of source material. All right, so yes or no? Do you like Lorna Dane? Yes. 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 Okay, I do too. So I think that's uh, is that everybody? My did you say yes? I've grown to appreciate her more since talking about her today. So I think before this, before this, I didn't really perceive her as three-dimensional as we've kind of made her out to be today. So that's been, that's been good. I think that is a beautiful note to end on. And I hope everyone listening to this will feel the same way. Thank you to everybody listening. Um, please check out this podcast on iTunes, which you can do so over at comicsverse.com. And yeah, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. 